We're going through the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, ascending to Jerusalem. What makes you really, really nervous? What would you go to any length to stop? People in power get really nervous when a new king comes to town. For example, King Michael, Romania's deposed monarch, returned to Bucharest in December of 1990. This was his first visit to Romania after the communist rulers forced him into exile 43 years before in the aftermath of World War II. When the 69-year-old king arrived, he made no comment to reporters, but headed directly to the monastery where his ancestors were buried. The fact that the king returned after four decades of being away sent tremors through Romania's political landscape. King Michael didn't make it more than 60 miles outside of Bucharest before the police stopped his entourage and escorted him back to the airport, demanding his immediate and unconditional departure. They advised him already, don't come. A source close to the situation said the Romanian authorities were very, very worried about the king's return. Rightly so, a, a crowd of demonstrators had gathered around Bucharest's University Square chanting the king and declaring his royalty. What makes you really nervous? When a new king arrives and threatens to dethrone you, to take away your power, to challenge you, who you are and how you live, Maybe it's not just those in Romania who are afraid of the king's arrival. Maybe we're all afraid of new kings. Maybe we should be. Because a, a new king riding into town means a new authority. A new authority means a loss of our own circles of power. When the king arrives, we ought to be really, really nervous. Like King Michael's return to Romania, the Davidic king in the person of Jesus returned to Jerusalem. Not only as David's descendant, he is also David's Lord. The arrival of, of Jesus to Jerusalem made so many nervous. Sights and sounds of the miracles of Jesus were fresh in the air. They were on the minds of the pilgrims of Jerusalem as they journeyed toward Passover. Passover is that great Jewish festival. You remember it well. They represented the freedom, the liberation of ancient Israel from Egyptian slavery. You remember Passover when the death angel came and killed the firstborn of the Egyptian households that it passed over the Israelite homes because their doors were marked with the blood of the Lamb. Passover, that celebration that linked the feasters with the Exodus, not merely in a way of a long-range memory, 
of the ancient event. Rather, somehow it seemed to reconstitute them over and over again as a covenant people of God, as a people that God had set free. There are not many events that are mentioned by all four of the evangelists. Why, only two evangelists even tell us about the birth of Jesus. But all four mention this triumphal entry. Not a, a single of the gospel writers misses the power of this event. The event itself doesn't seem to match what we've learned from Jesus through watching him in Luke's gospel as we've gone through for these three years of ministry. Allowing the crowd just to shout like that seemed like a curious departure from his normal mode, his usual aversion to acclaim. Like the crowd meeting King Michael in Romania, the pilgrims shout accolades to Jesus, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, instead of hosannas in the highest, which frame the triumphal entry in the Matthean account, Luke says it this way. If you notice that subtle difference, Luke has the crowd say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It reminds us, it echoes those words of the angel's announcement to Mary, those angelic choristers who announce his birth to the shepherds, glory to the God in the highest and peace on earth. It's like a bookend to the birth announcement. And he just let them yell. This time, unlike any other time in Luke's gospel, he just let them yell. Clearly, they were calling him king, and he allowed it. Even seemed to welcome it in some new way. Not so much with a sense of pride, but with a sense that at last he would allow the procession of glory to begin. The glory of God's kingdom arrived when he did. But, but when a new king arrives, some folks are quite smart enough to be nervous, while others just join in in the gleeful acclaim. The Pharisees, oh, they were smart enough to be nervous that day. They realized that if he made a ruckus in Jerusalem, that Rome would come in. The powers that be will not tolerate commotion in Jerusalem. It's politically dangerous. The religious establishment of Israel would lose this opportunity for quasi-freedom for the festival and way beyond Passover. Luke's account speaks of the Pharisees in the crowd who realized that the Passover pilgrims were calling him king. They realized what this procession meant. They realized the crowd was making this rabbi named Jesus out to be the Messiah. So they demand, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. Stop this. Jesus himself didn't usually need any prompting to silence his disciples. Normally, after a miracle, he would say, Now, don't tell anybody. Or, shh, let this be between us. Would you? 
But now, but now, this day, as he enters Jerusalem, things are different. All bets are off. His attitude has changed. And then he says, if my disciples are silent, the stones themselves are going to cry out. Jesus' arrival to the city of Jerusalem is so momentous that it requires a response. And if a human's response doesn't come, then another. If, if my disciples are silent, if these Jews are silent, then the stones will cry out. Possibly an allusion to Gentiles who regarded as insentient stones when it came to knowing anything about the mind or the will of God. If you have a text, turn over to Luke 23 real quick and you maybe, maybe see what Jesus is alluding to. If these Jewish disciples are silent, then the stones, the Gentiles might cry out. Could he be saying that? For it's interesting in Luke's gospel, at the moment of the crucifixion, Luke 23, 47, now when the centurion, when the Gentiles saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this was an innocent man. If my disciples are quiet, then, well, the Roman centurion will start the shouting. He will. And he does. Back to 19. Who's in this crowd? This crowd who cheers the Lord as he enters Jerusalem? Who makes up this motley mob of Passover pilgrims? No doubt the Galileans were there. They had seen his miracles so much, and they were his biggest fans. They knew his miracles well. They heard him declare that the kingdom of God had arrived, and now they well, the Galileans actually believed it. To be sure, there, there had to be some from Bethany there, for he had just called Lazarus back from the dead. Some believed and rejoiced when Lazarus came out of that tomb and others ran off to rat to the Pharisees about Jesus. Immediately, having heard that he even called Lazarus back from the dead, the Pharisees convened a council immediately. We've already learned, and if we let him go on with these miracles, this Messiah, man, then everyone will believe him, and the Romans will intervene and take our place and our nation. It's better for one guy to die than the whole nation. They were watching, and they were waiting. They weren't looking for another miracle, but rather they were looking for an opportunity, a chance to arrest him and seize him. They knew he'd be coming to Jerusalem. At least they hoped he would. They were ready to pounce at Passover. The pilgrims were just watching to see what other miracles he might do. The Pharisees were looking at the opportunity to seize him, but not the pilgrims. And others joined this group from Galilee and Bethany, and the Pharisees the blind were there, the lame were there, 
The children were in that crowd that day. They're all lending their support to the new Messiah. And some were real believers and others just joined the crowd. They were watching and the waiting. They were would be, might be, could be disciples. Look at him now. Jesus riding into the city on the young donkey. A borrowed coat placed on the beast's back for a saddle. He rides in in conscious fulfillment of the prophecy from the book of Zechariah, surrounded by disciples, might be disciples, curiosity seekers, general admirers, and those who want him to silence the crowd. We'll never, we'll, we will never know who did it first, but someone took off their cloak and threw it on the road, and then yet another and others started cutting the palm branches and throwing them in front of him as if to make a royal rug for the new king as he entered the city for the enthronement of the Messiah. And then there was this spirit of, of jubilation that filled the air. They began to wave the palm branches, and, and somehow it was like the Psalter had said, the trees were clapping their hands because their creator had come to claim his throne. But the hearts of those who had grown cold with ambition, those who were cold but self-importance continued to object to behold the whole entrance. Sometimes, if we're honest this morning, sometimes even in this broken world we're happy enough, we don't really want any big changes. We ourselves sometimes might be like that Pharisee that we're happy enough here on earth, we don't want any heavenly interruptions. We don't want a new king that will challenge our will and our way and our freedom and our plan. We want to be baptized, but not too deeply, to make sure we're still in control. If a new king rides in, he's going to threaten our little kingdoms, our little thrones, threaten our spheres of power. Jerusalem's hardened spiritual condition is epitomized by its, its failure of all cities, of all places. How long had they longed for the Messiah? And here he is. And they miss it. They do not welcome their king. He's not met by city officials nor feted by the leading citizens. He's not escorted back to the city. The encounter with the Pharisees, the only officials who show up, is one of utter rejection and the non-appearance of the high priest and the priestly descent and other officials and citizens of importance from Jerusalem is an affront. Rejection is made clear by the fact that Luke has gone to great lengths in his narrative to let us know that he really is the king. And although he is the king in every measure, even the Messiah, he is not received by Jerusalem. The Romans, 
They watch the whole affair in the distance and they must be amused. Their kings ride on stallions of war, not on the back of a baby donkey. This king is an oddity to them. They're not threatened by this ragtag group of Galileans, children and blind men and lame folk, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. They smirk and say, what kind of motley mob is among us? Only Luke mentions it, but look down at 1941 as the king, the Messiah, comes to the city. He weeps. Look at the eyes of Jesus. There's a tear in his eye. He weeps because they have rejected him, and he knows that their rejection will lead to their destruction. And so he weeps over the city of God. For he himself already knows that it won't take very long for these Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. It won't take long for the Hosannas to turn into crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's going to prove to be an utter disappointment. And when he does... When he doesn't overthrow Rome, when he doesn't produce like they thought he would produce, when he calls all men, both Jew and Gentile, into his kingdom and not an overt but way, but rather he calls upon them to quietly live out their, the kingdom in their lives in a subversive way as to transform and overthrow all the powers of the world. But it's not the way they imagined. It's not with sword or flying stone. Are you yourself threatened this morning by the arrival of the king? You ought to be. Are you afraid of this new king? You, you should be. This king who allows creation itself to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Barbara Brown Taylor says she remember once being at a retreat where the leader asked the participants, think of that person in your life that really reminds you of Jesus. Think of that, that one person who is most Christ-like to you. At this spiritual retreat, they went around and everyone shared who was most Christ-like to them and why this person represented Christ in their lives. And one lady, when it was her turn, she got up and she said, I had to think for a long, long time because I had to think who told me the truth about myself so much that I wanted to kill them. He speaks the truth to everyone, doesn't he? According to John, he doesn't just speak the truth, he is the truth. A perfect mirror in which pe people see themselves in God's own light. And what happened on this first entrance of Jesus in Jerusalem is happening now. 
In the presence of his integrity, our own pretense is exposed. In the presence of his constancy, our cowardice is brought to life. In the presence of his fierce and absolute love for God, our own hardness of heart is revealed. Take Christ out of the room, and all you can do is compare yourself to me. Take Christ out of the room, and all I have to do is compare myself to you. But if he rides into the church, into the city, there is no place to hide for he is the piercing light of the world. In his presence, people either fall down and worship him or do everything they can to extinguish his light. When the crowd themselves realize they could not control the Christ, rather he demanded control of them, it was upside down from what they planned. They began to shout out, crucify him, away with him, please stop him. They're all asking the question, is this young, curious rabbi, this carpenter's son who tells strange stories about the kingdom of God, the one who heals the sick and causes the blind to see and the lame to leap and cast out the powers of hell, is he really the son of God? Since Jesus has walked everywhere else in his ministry, it's odd to see him riding a beast, isn't it? You haven't seen that before. The fact he doesn't even mount the colt until he gets to the eastern boundary of the city of Jerusalem, this departure from his custom tells you this is planned. This is a calculated act. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, where we read the prophet saying so long ago, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a coat on the foal of a donkey. The prophet had said this is exactly the way it's going to happen. Horses are associated with war. The psalmist says the war horse's image is a great might is connected with the hope of military victory. Oh, He'll come on a horse one day, but this isn't that day. The cold in Zechariah's context is connected to peace and humility. That this particular cult had never been ridden before made the cult worthy to be the bearer of the king. Was? Was he the real king of the cosmos? This man who enters so oddly into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey. This king who has nothing but a ragtag band of followers behind him, throwing down their cloaks and waving the branches and shouting, It's a personal question, and I can't answer it for you, and you can't answer it for me, and yet we all have to answer it, for to not answer it is to answer it, isn't it? Again today, in the narrative of Luke, he rides into our midst, and we have to decide, 
It's not theory. It's not story. It's reality. Like the first witnesses of this triumphal entry, we now 2,000 years hence have read it and witnessed it again, and we too must answer the personal question, is he, is this rabbi, is he really the one? If you say no, then you're saying away with him, crucify him. You're not willing to allow him to change your spheres of power. If you say no, then you're making him out to be a charlatan. For he claimed, I and my father are one. If you've seen the father, you've seen me. He claimed to be co-creator with Yahweh on that day when it was enunciated, let there be light. And so if you today say he is not the Messiah, And you've shouted, crucify him in your heart, in your mind. Now, it's dangerous to say it is not he. But it's just as dangerous to say he is the Messiah. If you say, yes, he is God, yes, he is king, then you are committing yourself to a journey, a lifelong ultimate commitment and the exploration into God through learning about the person of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, and his glorious resurrection. If you say yes, you better put on your seatbelt. The journey for you has begun. His entry brings something of a sense of triumph, but not the kind of triumph would impress Rome. In fact, it's not even the kind of triumph that would impress Jerusalem for very long. They get bored and go from Hosanna to crucify him. I mean, it's an odd kind of king, isn't he? A king who washes the dusty feet of his followers to get the mud out of the toes of his disciples. A kind of king who lays down his life, a shepherd willing to die for the sheep. A king who finds life and death and power in servanthood. What kind of king is that? A king who finds victory and suffering and one whose very throne is a cross. Jesus enters the city to die, to be enthroned as king of the cross, which will bring even greater benefactions to his people. The greatest mighty work, the resurrection, awaits, awaits. The hard thing about this king is he asks us to do the same. You call me teacher and Lord, and that is right, for so am I. But if I wash your feet, if I'm a servant leader, then, well, that's what you've got to be too. And then he says, I want you to be baptized because I want you to die with me, and I want you to rise with me too. And Jesus didn't deny that inner competitive spirit that we all have, but rather he turns it on his head and says, if you really want to be the greatest, then be the one who serves the most. It's this strange, strange kind of kingdom that's based on 
humility and service in finding life through death. Well, if that's all he has to offer, giving me a towel and telling me to wash feet, I think I'll send him to the cross. That's what the crowd concluded that day. Wait a minute. I hear the clacking of the donkey's feet on the cobblestones now. The king has come. And you must decide. The reality is you can't stop his arrival. You couldn't stop it if you tried. The prophets had predicted it so long ago. It is as powerful as creation itself. It is part of redemption of creation. It's going to unfold. You can't do a thing about it. The king is here. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one that we've waited for. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, God, this isn't the kind of story we like. We love to see the dead raised. We love to witness the blind gaining light to their eyes. Oh, we, we like to watch the bread being multiplied and the hungry crowds fed. And when Jesus does those things, he's kind and nice and he doesn't threaten us. But today, he just rides right into our midst and demands we make a decision. We're in that crowd. All of a sudden, we've become part of the narrative and we have to choose. And it's a scary choice. For in both cases... We lose something. Oh God, may we be among the people who shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And may we look to that throne, that cross, and beyond it to the power of his resurrection to know that even as we die with this king, we rise with this king. And all the little kingdoms we've built in our own worlds, in our own hearts, in our own soul must be demolished. For both we and he cannot sit on the throne. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.